0: You have your Bibles, take them and open them to Ephesians chapter 3 tonight. It's been some time since we've been here, obviously over the holidays and things like that. And so I need to maybe start out by reminding us where we've been. You remember that we are focusing our attention in verses 1 to 13, chapter 3, as Paul really in his exhortation to the Ephesian believers takes this detour if you a kind of side road, if you will, from the main drive of his letter to them. And he's doing that so he can explain to these Gentile believers who are in Ephesus why he's saying what he's saying to them. What he has said in chapter one and chapter two and what he's going to say following this in chapter or verse 14 and following through the end of the letter why he's saying that. He takes this detour in order to explain just why he is saying that and why he could say that. And of course, Paul is talking about the church. He's talking about the church. And I think that it's fair to say that there's nothing more important in the mind and heart of God than the church. I don't think that's a far stretch to say that. Of all of that which God has created, The most important is the church. In fact, it is referred to as the bride of Christ. It's referred to as the body of Christ. Of course, we understand the universal church, all saved throughout all the ages, is part of this grand reality of the church in a universal sense. But what we don't know of the church really, unless it's manifested itself in a local body of believers. And so that's what he's really talking about. That's why he's writing to this specific group of believers. We understand that he's talking about the church, the body of Christ, that reality that is important to God that's the most important thing to God. Nothing could be more important to God than that which is of Jesus Christ. And therefore the church is the supreme thing that is important to the Godhead, the church. So important in fact that that may be quite possibly why we have so many books in the New Testament written to the church. Because God wants his church to be exactly what he intends it to be. And the Apostle Paul is so personally captivated by the reality of what God has done in in creating this body of Christ called the church and his privilege in being part of it all, that he just has to take a detour from what he's about to say to these believers in order to share with them not only why he is about to say what he's about to say, but also he wants it to have an impact upon them in their very lives. In fact, Paul is about to say, you notice in verse 1 of chapter 4, I entreat you to live as you ought to live. Why? Because of your faith in Christ who is the head of the church. You see that there in verse 1. I, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Why? Because it's about Christ. It's about being His body. It's about fulfilling what God has called you to do. And He's praying for their understanding of what it means for them to be a part of it, and that to be fully impacting upon their life. And so he detours here in the first 13 verses as we have it in the New Testament, to let them know how he came about this very privilege, how he came about to have his part, and what his part is in this church. And so Paul uh, takes this detour from what he's been saying in order to tell not only these Ephesian believers, but us really about his own role in the purposes of God for the church. And I believe that if we we take our time and just grasp the immense privilege that we have been granted by God as his church, then we will never treat it with a low view with which Oftentimes it is treated by many in the Christian community today. In fact, I would dare say that the reason that happened down in Honduras between those two men is because one of them didn't have the right view of the church that he ought to have. Part and parcel to why many Christians do this kind of thing and why they are so lackadaisical about their part in the church and therefore their actual Participation in and with the church is because they don't understand that God has sovereignly placed them there. They don't understand or have not embraced the mystery of the church personally. If you remember what Paul said to us last time we were together, if you remember that, then you begin to understand your place in the church. Paul said, beginning in verse 2, and verse 2 just begins one real sentence, and and it goes all the way down, even though we have punctuation here in verse 3 that's a period after I said to you in brief. That's really a parenthetical reality because this verse goes all the way down to verse 7 in actuality. But he says this, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, In verse 2, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. And I wrote to that about you before in brief, and he's talking about chapter 1 and chapter 2. And by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. When you read the word Gentiles, don't forget that's you. That's you and I. That's us who are not Jews. That's anybody and everybody without a Jewish heritage is part of this reality that Paul is talking about here and addressing with the Gentiles in Ephesus. Paul says, I've been given a stewardship of God's grace. It is my responsibility to carry it out. We all have a stewardship. We talked about that last time. We have a stewardship to the church. It's not for us. It is for others. That's why Paul says it was given to me for you. Wasn't given to me so that I could puff myself up. Wasn't given to me so that I could carry out some kind of self-promotion campaign. No, this was about you. I was given this so that I would put my effort into it with all the stewardship, and so that all that I had been gifted by God and been given by God would be given to you. So it entails my God-empowered gift of grace to magnify this mystery of Christ. To work about so this mystery that is the church would come to full fruition in your own mind and heart. Right? The unity, this is the mystery really at its its fullest fruition as we will see further as Paul goes on in this letter. The, The mystery is the church, but really it's the unity of believers brought together by means of the gospel. And the mystery, that mystery, that wisdom of God, as Paul calls it, is seen through the church. You notice in verse 10, he says, in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. So this wisdom of God, which is this unity of brothers together who were, separated at one time, now brought together by the gospel of Jesus Christ, would be seen to all the world and to heavenly rulers and authorities by means of the unity in the body called the church. So if we want to understand the church, if we, we understand Paul's letter to the Ephesian non-Jewish believer and to the Jewish believer because he's He's speaking of this to the Gentiles, but, <clears throat> but this is really a message to all Christians. If we're going to understand this, then we need to understand that this is a letter about God-reflected unity of believers through the church. And that reality is both shocking to the world as it sees it. And we got a testimony about that tonight as even the Catholic Church, the false religion of the Catholic Church watches this young man who has been so horrifically sinned against. And even someone from the other family who whose father sinned against this other man, they watch that he is serving the Lord, trusting the Lord because of all that God has given him. So it's shocking to the world. And it is illuminating, Paul says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, this is the drive of Paul's letters. We don't oftentimes think about that in our own life as we interact with the body of Christ, the church. We don't think our impact has all that far reaching consequence. And yet Paul says it affects the world and it affects the heavenly realms. This is his drive. He desires that we understand what God has done to save us so that we would live out that understanding in unity with one another in the church and thereby reflect his manifold wisdom to the watching rulers and authorities who are all over the place in the heavens and on the earth. Now there are some direct implications just to that general introduction. Because if we are actually listening carefully, then we cannot help but realize that there is no place in the church then for an isolated Christian. No place in the church for someone who says I'm part of God's family and yet isolate themselves. There's no way to have unity as God has designed it and as God has created it to be and for it to be displayed as God desires if we as Christians are not personally engaged with other believers in the body. That means that we must be involved in what the church is doing. We have to be involved with our presence with the body and what it is doing because it's necessary for us to do that for unity to be accomplished. That is simply to say that this unity of the body is not simply spiritual. So people say oftentimes, well, yeah, I don't belong to a church. I don't belong to a local congregation because I believe in Jesus Christ. And after all, we're of the church universal anyway, aren't we? Well, yes, but, but you cannot accomplish the unity that God has designed for the body of Christ by being apart. It does not work. That's why church on TV doesn't work. You can't be apart and be together, it's manifested physically by means of togetherness. We must be together to reflect our unity. That's just the first general implication that we know from this. Secondly, it implies that we put into practice, therefore, if isolation is a, is a non starter for the Christian in the body of Christ, then secondly, we have to put into practice our God given giftedness among the church. It's one thing to be present. And that be necessary, it is necessary, it's one thing to be present, but involved in that presence is our usefulness. In fact, Paul will directly address that in chapter 4, when he says in verse 11-16, through he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. We could just replace body of Christ with the term church for the building up of the church until when, until we all attain to a unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure and the stature, which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result of that, or as a result of that usefulness and being used in the body of Christ through our togetherness and unity being built in the church, that's what happens as a result. We, that is us together, are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In contrast to that, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him, into Christ, who is the head, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You cannot do it and be a part. It cannot be done. Each one of us has a part. And so as we've been studying through Ephesians, Paul has given us this this broad brush picture back in chapter one of what God has done to save us. He elected us before the foundation of the world. Remember that way back in chapter one? And then he, he gives the sovereignty of God in, in how God took care of that and why it was necessary in chapter 2 because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God had to do something to save us. Why we needed that. And he's going to get specific about how we live out this grace given to us in the church beginning in chapter 4. But before he gets to that, he's... He's reminding all of us, particularly these Ephesian believers, the incredible way in which God took to get the gospel to them and why that's important to know. This is important in our own understanding of our place in the body of Christ. And I don't think often we think of it, but we need to. Paul says that all of this was a mystery, you notice, before but it has now been revealed to him by the revelation of God, verse 3. That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery. And if I refer to this, you'll understand, he says in verse 4, my insight into the mystery of Christ. In the past, it was a mystery. In the past, it was hidden in God, it even says a little further down. It was information that God had, but God had not revealed. So it wasn't in the sense that it wasn't information and it needed to be made up. It just wasn't information that was fully disclosed. So Paul says it was a mystery in the past. It was something that was there but unknown. Something unrevealed. That is simply to say that it wasn't, that it didn't exist in the mind of God, like I said, it certainly did. It just that he hadn't revealed it yet. It was secret. And God told Paul and others, verse 5 says, in other generations, it was not made known, he says, to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed. Where? To his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. I guess This is another argument for the reality that We have a closed canon. We do not have other people receiving information about the church or anything else to do with the body of Christ or anything else that has to do with anything about spiritual things other than the Scriptures itself we already have. There is no new revelation coming. What was that secret? That secret was the reflected body of the Messiah known as the church would not simply be comprised of Jews, but it would be comprised of both Jew and Gentile as one. And you say, well, that's, that doesn't sound all that important to us, but it ought to be important to us, and, and it ought to be important just because of the Christian heritage that goes all the way back, frankly, into the Old Testament. The old, in, in the Old Testament, an Old Testament Jew never saw a Gentile Uh, It wasn't as if they they didn't believe a Gentile could be saved by God. It wasn't Gentiles are never savable. They certainly understood that a Gentile could be saved. It was the way in which they got saved that was the issue. Their mind, in their mind, uh, for a Gentile to be saved, they had to, in essence, become a Jew. They had to be a proselyte Jew. They, they may not have been a Jew by heritage, but they had to do everything a Jew did. It was taking on all of the Jewish practices, all of the Jewish rites, all of the ceremonial things that a Jew went through. And so the Jew knew that Gentiles could be part of the people of God. but What they didn't know was that in God's plan, Jew and Gentile wouldn't be two, they'd be one, and that one would be brought about through Jesus Christ and it would be known as the body of Christ or the church. That's what they didn't know. The Old Testament Gentile could become a proselyte Jew, but even as a proselyte Jew, that didn't change the fact that there was still a wall of distinction between them and any other Jew. We even talked about it in our previous studies when they had to come to God. They had to approach God in a different way. They couldn't even approach him the same way. They couldn't enter the temple the way a natural Jew could enter the temple. There was always that dividing wall, if you will, not only the dividing wall of their heritage, but, but actual dividing walls. And those walls created this distinction between the two. There was the area of the Gentiles, then they had the woman's area, and then you had the area where Jewish men could go. And so they didn't understand that God was intending that there would be no distinction between the two through Jesus Christ. The Jew knew that there was a Messiah coming, but they didn't understand the mystery of the incarnation. In fact, the the history of the Gospels shows us that most Jews of the day didn't even believe that God was in Christ. We saw it even this morning. They continue to reject Jesus Christ and who He is at massive amounts of people. In John chapter 6, 20,000 people just turn from Jesus and walk away at one time. So they didn't understand that the Messiah would dwell in the believer through faith in Christ, faith in the Messiah. So the mystery of Christ in you was far from their understanding. So They knew that God's salvation would include Gentiles, but they didn't understand the fullness of that truth. And so that's why Paul says, and by referring to this, verse 4, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. It was withheld in other generations, wasn't made known to the sons of men, but it's made, been made known now. It's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And what was revealed? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. How? through the gospel. So this is the main issue that the Apostle Paul is driving at. And he wants all believers, particularly Gentile believers, he wants us to understand about the mystery of God's creation of the church and that it is all who believe are together, together, together. Together, together, together. Paul wants us to know that we are fellow, fellow, fellow. Together, together, together. We have to understand this. And I think when we grasp its significance, it will forever change how we interact with the church. Let me me say it differently so that we get the point. If what we hear from Paul doesn't change how we think and interact with the church, then the reality is that we have yet to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of what God has done for us. This is exactly what Paul prays. I want you to be able, verse 18, that you might be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Talking about the church, wants our understanding to be fully engaged with the church and and what all that means by way of practice and interaction and outworking in the church so that the world sees us and wonders and so that the heavenly realms are, are learning about the manifold wisdom of God from the church. And he says, so I'm praying that that you'll have this this breadth and length and height and depth of understanding that you know the love of Christ, uh, i.e. that that love of Christ is being manifested through you. It's so flooding your eyes, so flooding your mind, that you're filled up to all the fullness of God. That's why Paul can say in chapter 5, therefore be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. If you understand this, you'll live it out just as God would have you live it out. You notice that Paul says the specific mystery is this, that we are, notice, fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers. That's the together, together, together. We are fellow heirs, fellow members, and fellow partakers. That simply means that we are fellow, fellow, fellow. We are together, together, together. You say, why do you say it that way? Because that's the prefix of each individual word in the original language that you have here in this verse. S-Y-N, if you want to transliterate it, sin, not S-I-N. And it just means together with. Together with. And so when it's added to those three words, when it's added to kleronminoi, which is heirs, it means heirs together with. When it's added to soma, which is the body or body, it means the body together with. When it's added to metoka or, uh, or the partner or a companion, that's the word what it means. It means companion with, together with. And so Paul says here we have these three ways or these three components that describe our place in the body of Christ, our place in the church. And all of them apply to each one of us who are in the church. And so you notice right out of the gate that just the idea of together with removes a whole lot of concept about isolation, doesn't it? I mean, where's this concept come in where we can be alone by ourselves, never interact with the church in any kind of capacity, never spend ourselves for the edification of the church and the body of Christ? Where do we get this idea that we can just be isolated by ourselves? Somebody must never have read Ephesians chapter 3 because it's together with, together with, together with. In other words, let's just say it a different way, there is no such thing as an isolated, untethered person in the body of Christ. No such thing. Impossible. Why? Because isolation doesn't reflect unity. You can't have isolation and unity all at the same time. It doesn't work. We are together, we are together, we are together, and we are together in these three different ways. How? Through the gospel. Through the gospel. So think about it with me. God through his infinite wisdom opened this mystery of the church to the apostles and prophets so that each and every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ might hear that gospel concerning Jesus Christ, believe the gospel concerning Jesus Christ, become part of this grand plan of God that was in his heart and mind, this unfathomable manifold wisdom of God that was in his mind about the church so that we might live unto his glory. And he did that with the ultimate purpose that this church would show the world and teach the heavenly realms about his manifold wisdom that they could learn no other way. God creates this this plan. God hatches this manifold wisdom of His to save a people of His own who would represent on earth the body of His beloved Son who saved them. And the reflection of that and how they interact with one another would be such a magnificent reality to the world around that the world just stands shocked in the heavenly realms, stand in awe of how God works out His great glory. The love of That alone ought to get us excited about being part of the church, shouldn't it? Well, let's let's just dissect a little bit for us here these three terms together. First one, fellow heirs. He says we are fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. Paul loved that term. Paul loved that term, Minoy In fact, he uses it over and over again throughout the 13 books that he has the prov- privilege of learning or writing. He uses it when he speaks of Abraham in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, he's relating that to the Jewish unbeliever that that while they held to their heritage through Abraham that that he was their entry place to God while the Jew held to that what was actually a reality was that Abraham was given the promise that he would be the heir of the world so Paul says Meaning that through Abraham, the Messiah would come, and through the righteousness of Christ, the Messiah, all who believed like Abraham would be saved. And so we are those of the faith who are the true children of Abraham. Again, Paul uses this term, as we saw in our study of Galatians, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 verse 29, that if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Notice in chapter 4 of Ephesians, chapter 4 reiterates it again when Paul uses the illustration of the slave and the child. I'm sorry, in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Remember, he uses this illustration of the slave, the bond and free, and he uses the child and the heir idea. As long as the heir is a child, he says in verse 1, he does not differ at all from the slave, although he's the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also while we were children, we were held in bondage under the eternal thing or the elemental things of the world, but when the fullness of Time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There's this this joining in with God. He says, because you are sons, God has sent forth His Spirit into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So Even though the child has a master over him when he's old, his heirship comes into play. It takes effect. And so Paul could say in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. This has always been on Paul's mind. This fellowship, this fellow heirship with Jesus Christ. And so, in just a few verses, we get the complete idea of all that we have through the blessing of God in salvation. And all believers possess jointly this with Christ. Every one of us has the equal share, the full inheritance of God. And so when you think about that in the church, and when you think about your place in in the church, in the body of Christ, there's not one of us because of our fellow heirs together with one another that we get this idea that we have some kind of better place than somebody else. We're not better than one another. There is no so-called inner circle in the church. No idea of some kind of spiritual segregation going on in the church. Paul's just simply saying to these Gentile believers, they're not spiritually above. And no saved Jew is spiritually above. They're all on the equal plane. It isn't Jewish Christians, oh, and then the Gentiles as some secondary source. No, all who are in Christ inherit all of God's blessing. And it is inherited jointly and only through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the head. It's all held together by him. So Paul says, here is what I found out through the uncovering of the mystery known as the church. The body of Christ, first of all, is the reality that all believers are heirs together. We all are heirs. Nobody's better than the other. And he says, secondly, and we are fellow members fellow members sinsoma remember how the apostle paul referred to believers at the end of chapter 2 remember what he said we are we are fellow citizens or we are a kingdom he said we are a kingdom and then he says we're a household of god right so then you're no longer strangers and aliens verse 19 but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of the God's household. Then he goes a little bit farther in there at the end, and he says, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the place where God dwells. And now here in chapter three, he links us all the way back to chapter one and verse 22 and 23. Notice what he says there. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. We are fellow members, you notice, of the body. We are members together of one body. Doesn't mean we're all doing the same thing. That's certainly clear, as Paul will delineate in chapter 4, verse 11 and following. I read it earlier, right? We all have been given specific gifts. We all have been gifted by the Spirit to do what God has called us to do in the body. We are of one body, however, and it takes all of us in that united and unified symmetry to function as God has designed and for the world and for those in the heavenly places to wonder at the majesty of God. When that happens, and we are no longer as babies who get naively caught up in all kinds of trouble, when we're unified and strong and we're working our gifts out in the church, we're We're strengthened as God would have. The kinds of things that we even heard about tonight and the kind of things that take place in churches through church splits and all other kinds of disasters don't happen. So There's a mystical union that is inherent in us. Those of us who are the people of God and it's manifest through the reality known as the church. There's an implication to that, right? That, that implies that without it, without interaction with it, without the togetherness of the body of Christ, then the righteousness of Christ is not seen as it ought to be seen. The growth of each part of the church is stunted and doesn't grow as it ought to grow. And disunity becomes the inevitable result. We have to strive and grow in our unity with one another. so that God is glorified through the reality that the world knows that Christ is the way to eternal life. We're a reflection of the gospel as much as we talk about the gospel. You say, how does that happen? It happens when we grow in our love and our knowledge of the one who has brought us all brought this all to pass. When we grow in our very, the unfathomable riches of Christ and and we understand the manifold wisdom of God which is according to His eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. The more we know and understand what God has done for us, the more we will strive to be unified in our outworking of togetherness with our fellow members in the body. Paul says we are fellow heirs, we are fellow members of the body. And then third, he says we are fellow partakers. Notice of the promise in Christ Jesus. Did you notice that Paul didn't say of the promises? There we're fellow partakers of the promise. The Bible's full of promises. Clear, all kinds of promises for those who believe in Jesus Christ. But here, it's just the promise. What's that? That's the promise of redemption. That's what Paul's talking about. The promise of redemption, the promise made to Adam and Eve in the garden and repeated to Abraham and to others throughout the entire Old Testament. It's the promise that is the bedrock of all the promises for those who believe in Jesus Christ. There is no promise for you if you do not have redemption. It's only through Jesus Christ that we have any access to any promise. So, to have a share in the promise of God begins by embracing the promise of redemption through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says, through the gospel. We're fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus Christ, how, through the gospel. In other words, there's only one entry point. We are in Christ through the gospel. That is simply to say, if you're going to participate in the mystery, which is known as the church that was revealed to the apostle Paul by the spirit, then it is to come only one way. It comes through the gospel. Can't get in any other way. That means that the church is not a place for the unbeliever. It's not a place for the unbeliever to just come and settle in and be comfortable in the, in the body of Christ. There's no place for the unbeliever in the body of Christ. If they come to the body of Christ, they need to hear the gospel, they need to see the gospel. And they'll hear the gospel and see the gospel and they'll either embrace Jesus Christ or they'll Not like the light, and because they love evil, because man loves the darkness, they'll run from the light and not want to have anything to do with the light. Only believers are fellow partakers of the promise. We sing that song all the time, right? For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. It is this gospel which Paul was made a minister, he says. It was this of which I was made a minister. It was this of which I was given the privilege to be able to go and tell you exactly how God saved you, why you needed salvation, and why I'm here telling you it. It was a privilege of mine. I was given this mystery for you. It was a stewardship given to me for you. It came to me by God's grace, he says. It was unmatched. It was a, a an undeserved grace of God that was given to me according to the working of His power. In other words, I'm not talking about things I made up. I'm not talking about things that I decided to think of, to to draw up so that hey, you guys can all get along. It has nothing to do with me, Paul says. It was all by God's grace, and it was all by God's power. I don't think any of us are shocked to realize that that's reality for any of us here tonight, isn't it? We're not here by our own power. We're not here because we decided to just muster up some energy and get our life right. And man, my life was going crazy, so I need to fix my life, so I better better think about embracing something that has to do with religion. So I'll go to this church down the street. No, you're here because God ordained you to be here and because he gave you the gospel and you believed upon Jesus Christ. If that's not the case and you're here sitting here and you don't know Jesus Christ, you need to. Because you're on the road to hell. You're not part of the church. You're not part of the heirship of Christ. You're not a member of the body of Christ. You're not a fellow partaker in the promise. You're just here watching the outworking. You're watching the outworking of the, of the manifold wisdom of God that is on display in this, this reality that he created called the church. Oh, we're glad you're here. We love having you here, but we want you to hear the gospel. If you go out of here and you haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, then, then we've failed in our task. We're here tonight because of God's grace and our gifts and our usefulness is all by God's grace and because of his power working in us. And so we don't just get to use it any way we want. We have to use it for God's glory. So Paul is saying don't don't think highly of me. Paul says I don't want you to think something special about me. Think of God. Don't, th- don't think of me. Think of God we'll get into this next time. But you notice Paul says, to me, this was given the very least of all the saints. I mean, I'm just surprised I'm even part of this. I mean, if if we were all on fire, Paul says, I'd be entering with smoke. It, It would smell like smoke. I mean, to me, this was given. He says, don't look at me. Think about God. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who works in us for the unity of the church. If there isn't unity in the church, then we, we don't understand what God has done for us. So let's be and think together, together, together. That's what we need to be, and that's how we need to think. Together, together, together for the glory of God and the unity of this body. Well, that's enough of my ranting. We'll get more later. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message tonight. Thank you for the truth in your word that challenges us and helps us so richly. Lord, I pray that this message has been clear in our hearts, that it's challenged us where we need to be challenged, that it's causing us to rethink and think about how we as people interact with this church. It's easy for us to to come up with all kinds of excuses. But really, Lord, that's just what they are, excuses. If you've saved us, then you've equipped us, gifted us, brought us together. Help us to be used to that end of the building up of this body. Help us never be so flippant it with it that we ignore it. I'll praise you in the end for all eternity. May we be a reflection of just what you wanted and created us to be for the gospel. To the glory of you and our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen.